Well, it is good to be with you this morning, and um, I am, uh, if you're wondering what I'm doing, I'm not playing on my phone. I'm actually trying to set a timer because I'm not very good at this time thing. Have you all noticed? Are you familiar with my lack of capacity on uh, measuring time? No. <laughs> I always love those people who say, man, just... Just preach as long as you need to preach, right? I'm like, you're my friend. Okay, all right, I just set a time. I, I will say that, never mind, I'm not going to say that I was reminded five times. Um, oh, did I just say that out loud? I guess I did say that. Um, yeah, it's good to be back with you this morning. And this is the time, lest I forget, that our kiddos are going to leave us and head back to the back with their workers this morning. So thank you, those who are serving our kids. And as we do each week, um, we will say, you are sent. All right. Thank you. Y'all didn't like these rows down here. That row seems, that third row seems awfully lonely down there. And you guys, I don't know what's going on with you guys. You're the only ones who wanted to be in your row. Um, this morning, we've got a, uh, we've got a great opportunity uh, to kind of rewind and, uh, and go back to a series in the past. I want to begin, though, this morning by um, just sharing something personal with you. Uh, on December 21st of this past year, uh, we got the word that my mother has Alzheimer's. Um, now, the painful part about Alzheimer's is the forgetting. That's the hard part. Uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, died of Alzheimer's. And uh, let's just say that by the end, it was, it was really, really hard. Um, and so we're asking God for his grace as we take the journey now in a different sort of way. But it has made me ever more mindful of the importance of our sermon this morning and of this text. Because remembering is an important part of the human experience, isn't it? Uh, it allows us to, to learn and to, to grow. It allows us to relive the joy of the past and to grow from the pain of yesterday. Remembering those things is what allows us to develop. It's a part of how we stay tethered to our identity, how we remember who we are. It's a tool that we use to teach generation after generation. So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about remembering. Remembering in the scriptural sense is a vital component to our faith. It, it puts us in a position for a restoration of hope for the future. It is beyond just looking back. It's a mindfulness of who God is and how He works, and it allows us to confidently hold to the promises for tomorrow because we know what He has done. And that is bound to His promises, and so we can know that He will do and act according to His character in the future. Our sermon this morning is a return to our Upside Down series. 
This is a series that we've been in for a while through the book of Luke. I think we paused it back in the summer. Is that right? So it's been a minute since we've been there. And today we are considering Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles or your electronic devices or however you're going to look at the word this morning, we will have it on the screen. But Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23, and the title of this morning is Remembering as Worship. Remembering as Worship. So this text actually acts as this wonderful bridge between our most recent series on worship and the return to our Luke series, Upside Down. So I would ask now, if you are able to please stand in honor of God's Word and its reading. Uh, if you are not able, we ask that you would please just stand with us in your hearts. This is a fairly long text, so if you get tired partway through and you need to sit down, that's okay too. So Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, and was, one, uh, was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you, enter, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the reading of God's word. 
The Lord has spoken to us, and we say this together. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, again, this is a fairly long text this morning, and uh, our text is filled with subterfuge, scheming power plays, betrayal, provision, remembering, recalibrating, centering, providence, and promise. It's more than we can really take a deep dive into in terms of every single verse. And so I want to give you a couple of concepts just as a quick flyover that we can't really go as deeply as we might this morning. So here's just a taste of a couple of bigger picture things. One sort of textual and then one more theological. Betrayal and the reminder of God's full knowledge of the deceitful hearts of men. Uh, That's a theme that we see here, especially in the early part of the text. While we can't even comprehend our own hearts, God knows every thought, every desire. He knows the brokenness of our hearts. Uh, Jeremiah in 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, right? That's us. That's our perception. But yet God knows everything about us. God knows every desire. God knows every motivation. And so in Judas, we see the frightening picture of deceit and of even, I think, self-deceit. Thinking maybe that, maybe even conceiving that he was doing the, the right thing by preserving this plan for a political victor that Jesus just wasn't panning out, and so he would move on and go to the next. Whatever was driving all that was in him beyond the work of the enemy himself, as we talked about spiritual warfare last week, motivating his heart. So in Judas, we see deceit, self-deceit. In the disciples, we see confusion about whether they were even the betrayer, right? They couldn't even figure by the end of this text, is it me? Is it me? Am, I, am, I, am I the one that's going to be betraying Jesus? And in that, we see our own tendency for self-doubt, for a lack of trust in God's grace, right? We think it's about us. We are so centered on us We miss that it's always, always about Jesus. This should be a warning to us all. We've considered a little bit these thoughts in our liturgy about our need to be honest about who we truly are and who we truly conceive ourselves to be in our own story. And if there's anything that I want you to see in these pictures of betrayal and deceit and confusion, it's that we are desperately in need of God's grace. Period. It's not more complicated than that. Now, the second flyover point that I want you to think about for just a moment, and this goes a little bit deeper, so can I nerd out for just a second? A few of you, kind of like theologically nerdy types, are going to be like, oh, great, this is good. We're so excited. And some of you are going to be like, why are they so excited? And some of you are just get on with it. So there's a number of views. All right, there's a number of views regarding the nature of what has historically been called the Eucharist or communion 
Or most commonly for us, we refer to it as the Lord's Supper. All of these uh, views, though, agree that this is an ordinance of the church. That what we do every week with these elements is something that the church has been commanded to do by the Lord. Now, there are, if, if I had to, to put together sort of a, a paradigm or a structure or a, here's a fancy word, a taxonomy. You like that word? Yeah, that's not where you stuff a dead animal, by the way, okay? That's a way of ordering a system. So a taxonomy of this, there's maybe four big picture views. We're going to put them on the screen just so that you can see them, okay? First of all, there's kind of the memorialist or the symbolic view. This is sort of, this kind of came out of uh, Zwingli. And so this is the idea that these are, that these are just purely symbols, that there's not that much more going on, that it is just a, a mental recollection remembering and that these are just symbolic items for us. So the memorial is symbolic view. The second view is the spiritual presence or the real presence view, okay? This would have typically been held by the reformers. And interestingly enough, these two views are the typical Baptist views, Okay. One having kind of dominated the 17th and 18th century, and the other then, the first, kind of drifting more into the primary role in the 19th and 20th century, okay? Uh, if, you want, if you want to dig deeper into this one, Michael Haken has a book. Uh, I can give you the reference for it, Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands, Recovering Sacraments in the Baptist Tradition. It's a great book that kind of digs deep into this idea of where we're at, and he certainly argues for the spiritual presence view. This idea is kind of a, it's a, it's a both and aspect. Yes, it is symbolic, but yet it's an understanding that there is something deeply spiritual going on. That through the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we come to these elements and when we receive them, that, that the presence of God's Spirit, the presence of Jesus is with us in that moment in a unique and powerful way. This is why we typically don't feel okay with Oreos and Fanta Pop to do the Lord's Supper with, right? This is, it's, it, there's a sacredness to the presence of Christ with us in this moment as we remember His sacrifice. And it really is about that idea of the presence of Christ. That's the depth of this. It's an expression of our union with Christ in salvation and a reminder every week of that salvation work. It requires faith. That's a big part of this view is that it's an understanding that faith, our coming in faith, believing in who Jesus is and what he has done, through the Holy Spirit, sealed as a new creation then, we come believing that this is truly representative of Christ's presence with us, right? So if we drop these things and, you know, the old adages, if a you know, mouse comes along and eats them up, it's, it's not somehow having a sacred moment with Jesus. What makes this sacred is our faith believing that this is what we're remembering, okay? The third and fourth view, one kind of representing the Lutheran perspective, consubstantiation. 
this is a different kind of both and. It's kind of a both and instead of with the memorialist view, the fourth view, which is transubstantiation, which is one that some of you maybe from Catholic backgrounds are aware of. This is the predominant Roman Catholic view, and that is that in the consecrating moment by the priest before uh, the Eucharist is given, that these elements actually come to embody and be the body and blood of Christ. We do not hold to that view, okay? But as, as you can see, there's been a, a wrestling throughout church history to come to a full understanding of what these uh, texts mean, of what the significance of this is. And I would say that I think for us, I think it would be fair to say that we have, we have sort of been in between one and two. We have, we have sort of held and we've had pastors along the years in this church that have leaned more strongly into view two and a few have leaned more a little bit to view one. But, but we are understanding, I want you to know that we are understanding that there's something significant and spiritual and not just a mental reminder of what Jesus has done, but of what Jesus is doing in every single moment in his redeeming grace. And that's what we remember when we come to this table. In our own Baptist confession, uh, that we look at, there is a section, an article on baptism and the Lord's Supper, gives us a couple of quick cues, and I want to mention this before we leave the point. It mentions at the end of a description of baptism, being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite of the privilege of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. This is a view that's called close communion. So there's the idea of open communion, which just means if you profess Jesus, anybody is welcome, come anytime, come to the table. There is a view of closed communion, which is generally the idea that this table is only for those baptized believers who are members and are a part of this particular local congregation, and it is restricted to those. And so if you were here as a guest this morning, even though you were a baptized believer, you would not be invited to the table. And there's the idea that we hold, which is a close communion, and it's why, if you'll listen closely, we typically say at the beginning of the introduction of this, that this is for those who have already been baptized, have taken that first step of obedience to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ, to declare Jesus as Savior and Lord, and come into the membership of church and are invited then to come and to celebrate at this table. This same uh, BFNM article says, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. Do you hear in that view one just a little bit more heavily than where we might lean a little bit more towards view two? Okay? Here, here, here's, where, here's where we are, I think. And it's bold of me to say that since you know, I'm not, I'm not a pastor uh, or, or leading in, in the church in that way right now. And so I think, I think this is fair to say this is where we are. Here's a couple of truths that we definitely hold to when we think about both the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both are individual and corporate. It's, it's, it's a part of describing our identity, right? 
It's an individual thing as we come as believers to the table, as baptized believers, but yet it's a corporate thing because we do it out here. All right? We, we do it amongst our brothers and sisters. It is both a, a remembrance and a, and a declaration that we're remembering, a declaration that we're celebrating together that we believe that Jesus is our only hope of salvation and we are holding to his death and resurrection. Both are personal and public. Uh, there's this testimony to the death and return of Christ. Both recognize union with the living body of Christ and the anticipation of his bodily return. So when we come and we take these elements, we are recognizing that we believe and are unified that we have died with Christ as believers. That, that this is a thing that actually happened, that he died and rose again, and we are anticipating that one day he's going to come back. Not just in some weird, fuzzy, you know, esoteric kind of spiritual way. He's literally going to come back. There will be a day where he will, where Jesus will bust the skies wide open, and he will return and make all things new. We should say, praise the God, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus, right? That's what we should celebrate. So, uh, if passages in relation to the Lord's Supper beyond our text this morning, Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Mark 14, 22 through 25, our text here from Luke 22 this morning, and then most importantly, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 25 uh, through 25, and we'll touch just a little bit at the end on those. All right, now let's dive in and move quickly. I have two primary big points that I want you to think about this morning, because we want to get beyond just the hows and the whats about this concept of the Lord's Supper, and we want to dig into this morning, I think really kind of to the why of it, right? We remember that, all right? So there, there's our tag, and I'm going to give you three things uh, of what we're remembering when we think about and come to the Lord's Supper every week. We remember that Jesus is sovereign in knowledge and control. Jesus is sovereign in knowledge and control. This text really, in a, in a broader sense, kind of, kind of shows us this. Um, it, it's, it's part of what we recognize about what's happening. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would call his disciples together for the Passover to celebrate together, knowing that Judas was in the midst of betraying him? He knew Judas would betray him. Verses 1 through 6 weren't a surprise to him. In verse 21 through 23, he makes it clear. I know that the one who's going to betray me is sitting right here at this table right now. I want you to know that a part of what we remember when we come to this table is that the Jesus who died and rose again for us, the Jesus that we have been united with in salvation the Jesus who our hope is placed in is sovereign God, and He knows everyone and everything. There is nothing beyond His gaze, and we should find great joy in that, right? He knew. He gave this prophetic pronouncement about His betrayal. 
He recognized, though, that it was a fulfillment of what's written, of God's sovereign plan. He was being obedient to the Father. And so even though he knew, which in our minds we think, oh, well, if he knew, then he could have, he could have gone in a different direction. Why didn't Jesus, you know, do the Jesus juke and dip and dive and get out of that thing? Because that's why he was here. That's why he lived his life. That's why he did what he did, was for the sole purpose of the sovereign plan of the Father to bring redemption to his people. He knew, but yet there is this personal responsibility aspect that's still there because he says, woe to the betrayer. He, He spoke a word of woe on Judas because just because Judas was acting to fulfill God's plan didn't mean he was off the hook. He still bore responsibility for his own sinful behavior. So we see it in the betrayal aspect that Jesus is sovereign in knowledge and control. And then the second part of the text, we see it. He'd already prepared every detail of this worship for him. This is what I love. The the preparation of the Passover meal and the different... um, The different biographies of Jesus tell it in slightly different ways, but it's just beautiful because, I mean, as Jesus described this to them, it was just like, okay, so you're going to go and you're going to meet this guy and you're going to see this and he's going to take you and you're going to tell him this. He's going to say, okay. It was just almost matter of factly, right? Because Jesus knows and is in perfect control in the midst of all of this. But yet, can you imagine being on the other end of that instruction and maybe being one of the disciples? Maybe by now they were kind of used to this kind of thing. But yet the disciples there are receiving this message and it's like, wait, what? We're going to just walk into town and there's going to be this guy with this water jug and we're just going to go up to him and say, hey, got a room for us? The teacher says, show us the upper room, right? But yet that's Jesus. He had already perfectly laid out. And here's, here's the dichotomy that's going on in this text. And I don't want you to miss it. While the religious leaders of the day and Judas were scheming and fixed on power, Jesus was doing what? He was longing to worship with his disciples. Do you see the tie back to what we've been talking about over these last four weeks about worship? Jesus longed to be in that. He said, I, I've, been, I've been so hungry and anxious to have this meal with you before I suffer. I just want to be together and I want us to to think about the Father. I want us to think about what He has done for us. And He will then say, and I want you to understand what this is going to look like next. Jesus already had made all of the necessary preparation to make this work. Second thing that I want you to see here under, we remember. We remember not only that Jesus is sovereign in knowledge and control, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise between God the Father and His people. Now, let's let's look back for just a minute. I want you to picture the context here. This is Jerusalem. It's swelling to its capacity uh, and well beyond for this annual feast. Pilgrims have traveled from across the country to worship and to celebrate. This week-long time of remembrance instituted so that the people would never forget their God. 
never forget his deliverance of their people from captivity in the land of Egypt. That's what the Passover was about. As they were eating, seems to tie us clearly to the celebration of the Passover meal with the disciples in the upper room, right? That was the purpose of them gathering, to worship through the Passover, to remember a faithful God who has rescued his people. So, let's look a little bit deeper and think about what it was they were doing in that worship moment. There was the bread that was a part of the Passover meal. This was, this was a meal of, of bread and wine and bitter herbs, uh, all reminders in some way of, of their deliverance and of how they with haste came out of Egypt. So they're eating, and the bread is a picture of provision. Uh, what we will see is that now his life and ultimately his broken body will be the reminder. In John 1.29, we get this picture of the Lamb of God, right? John proclaims the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood the connection between the Passover Lamb of Exodus and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who had come to give ultimate release, ultimate rescue to his people. There were four cups typically of the Passover meal, Exodus 6, 6 and 7, and these point us to what are called the four I wills, promises of God to his people. This is what Exodus says in verse 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So in the first I will, cup one was a cup of sanctification. It was a setting apart of a people. Cup two, a, a cup of praise, setting free from bondage. Amen and hallelujah to that. Cup three was a cup of redemption. They were bought and ransomed with a price. And cup four, a cup of acceptance. They were adopted as the people of God. You see the beauty of how this meal so perfectly for all of these centuries had been pointing at Jesus, pointing at Jesus. And now Jesus is going to take this worship of remembrance of what God had done to rescue his people and say, and now here's how he will rescue all of his people for all eternity. This is, this is a glorious worshipful moment here, right? In this meal, Jesus looks back. So this is the Passover meal that we see, Exodus 12, and, and the worship of that. Israel rescued by the blood of the Lamb. Praise be to God. In this meal, Jesus declares a present reality. He has come to die. His death is sufficient because, why is his death sufficient? Because he is fully God and fully man. He bore our sin. And he satisfied the debt that we owed. That is glorious. In this meal, Jesus looks forward. He looks forward that one day there's going to be this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Isaiah 25 looks forward to it. Revelation 19 promises and gives us in verse 6 through 10 uh, uh, an inkling of what it's going to look like. And it's going to be a time when all of God's people from all of the generations are gathered there together in glorious worship and recognition of how amazing He is. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Only God is worthy of worship. That is a part of what we're remembering when we come to this table. Only God is worthy of worship. Third, Jesus is forever recalibrating our hearts with Him as the center of our worship. I don't want you to miss this. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus is, is now giving new meaning, new, new understanding. Not erasing the old understanding, but expanding the understanding. It's kind of like they've been sort of looking down and seeing their understanding like this. And Jesus is removing the blinders and lifting their face up. It's like going from a little 12-inch black and white to a 70-inch HD 4K, right? Now they get to see the whole picture. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus here? Do you see his work on the cross that they have been looking forward to? And now he says to these disciples, the moment is here. What you've been looking at, back and forward towards hoping for, longing for in the Messiah, it's here. It's me. Oh, the grace and mercy of Christ fulfilling the salvation of the people of God. Jesus, His cross, His resurrection must be central above all. Jesus recalibrates here, says we're not just thinking about how faithful God has been and what He has done in the past, but now I want you to see that now and forevermore, the center of what we look at and the center of our worship is the cross, is my death, my resurrection. My coming return for you. That's the center. That's the, that's the recalibration of our worship. He redirects the gaze of the disciples and us from the past to what is to come. The bread is not just about food, but the provision of our salvation, his broken body, his ultimate sacrifice. The cup is no longer about the wine, but it's the blood of Jesus, his substitutionary death for us, his redeeming of us the final seal on the covenant to rescue a people for himself. This is the big picture. This, this is the crescendo, right? This is the symbols and all of the woodwinds and the brass and everybody going. Paul then helps us to see the significance of this recalibration by Jesus of the meal as he writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11. So let me just breeze you through this last part to see some of what Paul touches on in 1 Corinthians 11. This second big point then, we need the Lord's Supper because of our first sinful hearts. We need the Lord's Supper because we have sinful hearts when we look at 1 Corinthians 11 and what was going on there, it was a train wreck. Let me tell you that in my role with the association, I'm in a lot of churches. And I see a lot of messy churches. I see a lot of crazy situations and all of that. I ain't never seen no Corinth, right? I mean, that is, that's, it's craziness going on. 
right? And a part of that craziness was around the Lord's Supper. They turned it into this first come, first serve, priority, whatever, and all of that. And it was just about the eating. It wasn't at all about what it was supposed to be about. I mean, it was a joke, quite frankly. And, and Paul, uh, Paul says to them, you've, you've turned the Lord's Supper upside down. It, it wasn't worship. It was anything but worship. Uh, because this meal, the meal, is a celebration of grace. It, it's a remembrance of Jesus. It, it's a recognition in that moment of the profound sense of our union with Christ. How could you treat it like that? Paul's saying to the Corinthians. But it's a reminder that while we may not have that same kind of junk going on, we're just as big a mess when we come to the table sometimes. And if we're not careful, this turns into just something that we just kind of do. We have to constantly be reminded that we are broken people in need of rescue. That doesn't stop. We are broken people in need of rescue. I mean, think about the story in Luke. Judas betrays. The disciples squabble. Peter ultimately in our story is going to deny. We have to be reminded that certain salvation is because of Christ alone. That when we come to this table, it's not about us. That when we come to this table, it's it's not us puffing our chests and saying, everybody watch me as I stroll down the aisle and as I take my perfect pinch of bread and dip it with no drips. And, right? It's not that. That this is about Jesus. Always has been and it always will be. Jonathan Edwards once said, the original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. Right? If you want to tattoo something on your forehead backwards so you can see it every morning in the mirror, that might be, that might be an option to put on the list. We need the Lord's Supper because of our sinful hearts. We need the Lord's Supper because of our flawed memories. We are a fallen, broken people. We have wayward memories. We have faulty memories. We have things that we should remember that we can't remember. We have things that make no sense that we remember, but yet we remember. We are called, and, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11, to remember and to examine See, we have this tendency to make sacred things just simply tradition. That's one of the risks that we face here that we talked about in the early days of Antioch. Should we do this every week? Is it a risk that it just becomes this tradition, this thing that we do that's just mechanical? We come up to the table, we do that. It's just kind of how we end the service. Da, 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 da. It's like playing music or praying so that the you know, band can get off the stage and somebody else can come on. We risk that. We, we, we have that tendency because of our flawed memories. We begin to think that we really aren't that bad and are worthy to come to the table. We minimize our sin. We make ourselves the hero of our story. We minimize his sacrifice and his presence. We slide so much into that memorialist view that we just think, ah, it's just stuff, it's no big deal. 
And we don't realize that when we stand here and when we receive, when we physically partake of those elements and put that into our body, we are being mindful of the very presence of Christ through his Holy Spirit with us, that we have and are not worthy of that reality, but yet because of his great love for us, he has made himself one with us. That should blow all kinds of parts of your mind and heart. We minimize. We, we're... So, so we're, we're learning, we're, we're relearning our role, right? We're learning habits of the cross when we come to the table every week, that, that we are living a cross-centered life. So every week we are reminding ourselves here as a part of our worship, as maybe even the culmination of our worship, we come to this table to remember Jesus, Jesus is what this is all about. If I miss part of the sermon, Jesus is still what it's all about. If I miss part of the song, Jesus is still what it's all about. If I came in with a grumpy attitude and I'm leaving with somewhat grumpy attitude, Jesus is still what it's all about, right? It, 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 re, it, it is reteaching, re, relearning us, re-remembering us of the habits of a cross-centered life. We learn to live a life remembering worship, a life of Eucharist. You know what that means? Giving thanks a life of Eucharist for Christ. We are remembering and therefore giving thanks. We do this weekly largely because it seems the only adequate and sufficient response to the preaching of God's word every week, right? We, we kind of don't do the old traditional invitation time, but yet every week we give an invitation to say, if this text encourages you and uplifts you, Come and remember it's because of Jesus. If this text discourages you and brings fear and you're not sure how in the world you can do it, you can't. Come and remember that it's about Jesus. If this text points you in a way that's going to be hard and you feel uncomfortable with and you're not sure about, come and remember that Jesus will help you on your journey. It's the response that we need every week. Finally, we need the Lord's Supper because of our desperate need for community, for community. It is about us coming together in commitment for desiring to be a people purified of our sin, longing for righteousness, longing to help one another, to gospel one another on the journey. Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Answer to both of those, yes and yes. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Every time we come together at the end of this service, we're reminded that we all are right with Christ for the same reason, because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for us. Weren't any of us really, really saved, and then some of us just kind of a little bit saved? We were all, all the way, to the fullest extent of the measure of grace, saved and rescued. All of us came through the same door. So we don't just observe, we participate. And we participate together, 
partake and eat. Actually participate. We don't just watch it. We, we do it. We physically take something and we put it in us. We have that moment of pulling together all of those senses to realize God has done something and is doing something in us. And we do that together in the sight of one another. The unity that we have is through Jesus and Jesus alone. When unity is threatened as it was in the Corinthian church, Jesus has to be made central. That's what Paul was doing. He was recalibrating the Corinthians to be recalibrated like Jesus did to say, what in the world are you guys doing? This is about Jesus. This isn't about you being hungry or getting there. This is about Jesus and only Jesus. It points us Also to the celebration in heaven again in Revelation 19. One day, oh, brothers and sisters, there's going to be a feast up in heaven. And all the cares of this world are going to be passed. All the brokenness, all of the sin, all the rebellion is going to be gone. And we're going to come around that big old feasting table. And we're going to see Jesus for who he is. The lamb, as if it were slain, is going to come on and we're going to celebrate and rejoice, worthy, worthy, worthy to receive our worship. That's what we remember every week. That's why why we do this over and over and over again. You know, these days ahead with my mom will be likely full of forgetting. And so we'll do all we can to remember together. We'll look at pictures. We'll talk about old stories. We'll, we'll, we'll do whatever we can to keep pointing back to this reality, to helping to remind her who she is, who she's been, who she'll always be to us. If we need to do that, surely, surely as believers, we need to do this as often as we can so that we remember. Tim Chester says this, the Lord's Supper is a call to God to act in keeping with his covenant, forgiving us, accepting us, welcoming us to the table through the finished work of Christ. So I say, come, let us celebrate at the table of death and of life. We've been reminded in the text even that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, all in his knowing and understanding, he, at the table, took the bread, and he broke that bread, and he blessed it, and he distributed it amongst them, and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you do this, what? Remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine and he blessed it and he passed to them and he said, this is, the, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. And in doing this throughout the ages, you declare what I've done and who I am. So I invite you in this moment, if you're here this morning, even if you're not a part of the Antioch family, but you're here as a baptized believer, we invite you to come to this table and to receive these elements as servers are here on left and right. Gluten-free will be on my left, your right. But if you're here and you're not a believer, then we want to encourage you, don't, don't take this remembering of something that you haven't experienced yet. 
Lift your voice to the Father and confess your sin. Come in repentance and faith and trust Him for salvation today. That's the first thing. If you've done that and not yet been baptized, then we invite you to take that first public step of expressing your commitment and relationship to Him. So we invite you to come in baptism first before coming to the table. If you'd like to talk with somebody, pray with somebody, Pastor Jason will be in the back. I'll be in the back. Uh, There are others around that you can grab if you just want to pray with somebody. But we encourage you to come in this time. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you and we love you. And we pray that in this moment as we take these elements, God, that by your grace, we would indeed remember and see how glorious you are and what a gracious, gracious gift you have given to us. May we recognize today your very presence with us in this moment as we take these elements and as we remember as a sacred act of worship. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen.